one of these days I'm gonna keep the middle school kids in here. So it feels like we have more people in the service. Would you turn in your Bibles at this time to John chapter 10? And I wanna thank you guys for, for coming out. You know, um, I was listening to something yesterday and it was startling, just the, stata, the statistics, you know, um, about uh, fathers in the home. And the pastor was saying, and he was kind of going through these stats, and he says that right now in the United States of America, it is the least likely place to have a father in the home. That's a shame. That is a, that's a horrible, just, I, I, I was shocked by that, you know. I need to research it to make sure he wasn't just blowing smoke there. But uh, I thought, you know, it's no wonder. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence that you have fewer fathers in the home interacting with their children. We have children, uh, young people that are so confused about their identity. And then you have the number of church attendants that have just plummeted. I, don't, I think it's all linked together, personally. But anyway, I thank you for coming out today. We're in John chapter 10, as you know, and last week we looked at the first six verses. And as I mentioned last week in the first six verses, Jesus really gave an illustration that would have been very, very familiar to the people that he was speaking to. All of the people that heard Jesus speak these words, verses 1 through 5, to be very specific, they would have been able to picture, they would have been able to imagine exactly what Jesus was talking about. It was something very, very familiar to them. If Jesus was speaking to us, and maybe he was speaking of, um, you know, something like driving on the freeway and big rig, you know, trucks and, and this type of thing, and he's using that as an illustration, we would be tuned in. We'd say, oh, yeah, I know that, I know that. And be careful when you pass and watch those big spike you know, uh, lug nuts. <laughs> you ever see them? I, Tracy and I went down to Oregon last week, and we passed a few trucks with those, and I found myself just really kind of getting as far away from that. I can just picture the thing just <laughs> peeling your vehicle apart. But anyway, Jesus was using an illustration that would have been understood. Today, for us, but for them, he just continued. Verse 7, Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and am known by my own. We'll stop there for a moment. Father, we pray that as we continue our study in John's gospel, and Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you that you're inspired by your spirit, Lord, the apostle John, to write these things. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your word, that we, many, many, many generations from the time that you spoke these words, we can still benefit from the words that you spoke to them so long ago. We pray, Father, that you would give us application. We pray that you'd comfort us with your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd warn us with your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Again, this is something that they would have understood. For us, you know, we need help, you know, the door of the sheep. That seems so odd. We know that at that time, when a shepherd would take his sheep, his or her sheep, because there were shepherdesses, you know, when they would take their sheep out into the pasture lands, many times they would make a 
pen for the sheep and for the goat. Um, you go to Israel and um, everything's made out of rock because they have a lot of rocks, you know. So you kind of use what you have. And so they would make the pens and there would be one entrance to get into the pen. And at night, they would take their sheep, they would lead their sheep into the pen, and then the shepherd would lay in front of the entrance. The shepherd would, in essence, become the door so that the sheep could not get out, and so nothing from the outside could get in. And so when Jesus says, I am the door, this would cause them to you know, perk up and say, oh, we understand that illustration, but he's not just speaking in general terms, he's speaking of himself. He says, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus says, I am the door. And, uh, oh, by the way, I need to point this out, that we have two more I am statements of Jesus. Remember, in John's gospel account, it's, it's built around, this entire gospel account is, is built around seven I am statements of Jesus, seven signs of Jesus. So we have two more of those I am statements of Jesus. We have I am the door, obviously, and then the next one is, I am the good shepherd. So Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Well, if I was going to ask you a question, you know what question I would ask you. Have you entered in by Jesus? I wish there were more people. I wish there were unfamiliar faces. So when I ask the question, I can say, maybe there's someone that hasn't placed their faith in Christ, you know, and, and they need to do so. But you know, guys, there are many people. We know many people that haven't placed their faith in Christ, don't we? And we need to share the gospel with them. We need to be people who realize the time in which we live. We need to symbolically roll up our sleeves and we need to put our hands to the plow, and we need to keep moving forward and not be distracted by the calling that the Lord has called us to. In verse 10, it says, I have come that they, that they would be the sheep, may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. Isn't that what we want? Well, we're thankful for life, but we want it more abundantly. Have you ever thought about that more abundantly? I've mentioned before, I was in a pastor's meeting years ago, and uh, some of the pastors, you know, they were just chit-chatting, and one of the pastors said, you know, um, I was reading recently where Jesus promised life in that more abundantly, and I asked the Lord, Lord, where is that abundant life? And he said, and as I was kind of meditating upon it, I wondered if the Lord meant... It's not just abundant in all the good things. See, that's modern-day Christianity. Maybe it's just abundant in all things. And you think of your life. You know, there is this abundance of life. I believe that the Christian, that the child of God, is a person who loves more deeply than those who don't know the Lord. I believe that a Christian, someone who's really tuned in, you know, to the Word of God, walking by the Spirit of God, I believe that they, they, um, they have concern and sympathy for people more than people who do not know the Lord. You know, uh, do you think a, a person that doesn't know the Lord thinks for a moment about people who are perishing? No, no, but but we live with this. We have this reality. And for us, many times, you know, let's be honest, we don't think of all those going to hell today, you know. But we might be thinking of our family members. We might be thinking of our loved ones. I was um, with some pastors uh, recently and their wives, and, and we were fellowshipping. And as I was talking with them, I thought, you know, it's interesting. Each one of these pastors have loved ones that are not walking with the Lord. You know, you could have, uh, you could have, you know, 100 kids. But if you have one that's not walking with the Lord and the 99 are walking with the Lord, that parent, those parents are going to be concerned for that, that one that's not walking with the Lord. And, um, and I was thinking, Lord, it's kind of like, not that the Lord does this to us, but I think it's beneficial in that, we have 
sympathy. We understand that, you know, boy, I know what it's like to have a child that's not walking with the Lord. Now, a, a pastor shouldn't have a spouse that's not walking with the Lord. But there are many people in the churches that we, you know, shepherd that have spouses that aren't walking with the Lord. That's a difficult thing. This is why the Bible is so clear about not being unequally yoked with the non-believer. You know, guys, everything in the Bible is there for a purpose so that nothing takes us by surprise. So we might be warned up front, you know. Um, I think it's worth noting that, you know, the Lord doesn't say that we lose our salvation if we marry someone that doesn't believe. But we don't experience that abundant life like we could, like we would, if we're committed to someone that was committed to the Lord. I mean, it's just the way it is. But Jesus, he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So the good shepherd, remember the good shepherd, he's contrasting himself with the false shepherds of his day. And the good shepherd, he protects, he promotes life. He's contrasted with the thief who steals, kills, and destroys the beginning of verse 10. You know, Jesus here, he speaks of the thief. And when I think of the thief, I think of someone who uses deception, trickery. Uh, you know, sleight of hand. They're patting you on the back. They're giving you a hug as they're reaching in your pocket and pulling out your wallet. That's what I think of when I think of a thief. And then he mentions robbers. And when I look at that word, robbers, I, I think it implies violence and destruction. Um, my parents, uh, Marielle and Nate, are uh, coming back. They were, went to a worship conference uh, the last part of this past week, and they're down in Huntington Beach yesterday, and uh, they sent a text that they, were, they went to Seal Beach, and they went out for dinner. And uh, my parents actually lived in Seal Beach for a period of time, when they were between houses, between homes, and um, they walked down to um, get a meal. And as they're walking along, this guy pulls up on a bike and grabs my mother's purse and just rips it out of her hands and gone. That's a thief. That's a robber, you know. Uh, or that's a robber. That's not a thief. You know, the thief would kind of pull your, you know, your iPhone when you're not looking or something like that. And so we have this picture. I had mentioned to the first service that it kind of got my attention because many times, and not just me, but many Bible teachers and commentators, when we speak of the devil, Satan, we usually go to this text, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But you know, in its context, Jesus didn't seem to be speaking about the devil here. He seemed to be speaking of the false Shepherds. So, that's good to pay attention to the context, I guess. As Jesus was speaking, I wonder if he expected the religious leaders to catch on to what he was saying. Now, let me explain this. Guys, remember, as Jesus was speaking, there was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You know, none of these books, these letters, these epistles... Uh, existed they when in the book of acts when it talks about the apostles teaching the scriptures teaching doctrine they're teaching the word of god they're teaching the torah they're, we would say the old testament that's the scriptures that they had they didn't have these new scriptures new testament scriptures they were going to eventually write these um these new testament scriptures so i want you to keep in mind keep that in mind I've mentioned in times past that I believe that the Lord has expectations for his people. You know, if he just saved us without sealing us, if he just saved us without filling us with his Holy Spirit, if he just saved us without giving us a desire to know his word, you know, giving us his word, then I don't think he should expect much from us. 
But the fact of the matter is he saved us. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. He's maintained, you know, kept the word of God uh, for generation after generation after generation. We have not only the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. We have, I believe, the complete revelation of Jesus Christ, the written revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And I believe that the Lord has expectations for us. I believe that the Lord expects us to know certain things. Going back to the example I gave a few moments ago. We can't say, Lord, I'm in this miserable marriage. I'm married to this gal. She doesn't know the Lord. She doesn't want to go to church. She doesn't want to read the Bible. She doesn't want to pray. What's up? The Lord would say, I want you in my word. Be not unequally yoked with the non-believer. Oh, I'm going through difficulties, Lord. Time is, things are difficult. They're strange. They're hard. I, I don't understand what's going on. He would say, no, no, no. I have higher expectations for you. I told you through James and Peter, not to think it a strange thing when you go through various trials, fiery trials. Do you see what I'm saying? He gives us information. He, he warns us beforehand in his word. When I ask the question, if Jesus was expecting the religious leaders to pick up on what he was saying, I'm thinking of what the scriptures had to say in the past, scriptures that they would have been familiar with. Maybe the common man wouldn't have been familiar with Ezekiel, but the religious leaders should have been familiar with Ezekiel. Do you guys remember, it's been a long time now, but when we were in John chapter 3, Jesus meets with Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand. He thinks Jesus is speaking of a physical birth, rebirth. He asked a silly question. How can I enter, enter a second time into my mother's womb? You know, I don't understand what you're saying. And remember, Jesus corrected him. Do you remember? He says, you being the teacher of Israel, don't know these things? There was a rebuke. There was a correction. And I suggested to you at that time that in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 28, Ezekiel prophesied of a time, and he used the symbol, he used, he used the examples of water and the word and a new heart and a new spirit being born again. I mean, he gave that example. And I suggested that, that the Lord held uh, Nicodemus, you know, he had expectations for him that, you know the scriptures. You know that Ezekiel prophesied of these things. So what I'm speaking to you shouldn't be unknown to you. They should be known. When Jesus was speaking in John chapter 10, I wonder if he expected the religious leaders to go back in their memory to Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, I'm, I'm giving this as an example, and I know that many Christians have no idea where to find Ezekiel in their Bibles. You know, so it's not like a book that you study on a regular basis. But if you were an Old Testament religious leader, you would read Daniel. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. In Ezekiel 34, listen, let me just read a few verses to you. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy, listen, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. Listen, woe to you, shepherds of Israel. Are you getting it? <laughs> there seems to be a, yeah. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. Who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with wool. You slaughter the fatlings. You do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. Boy, to me, when I look at this and I see this contrast between Jesus, the good shepherd, in John chapter 10, and the false shepherds at that time, remember the context, guys. 
The context says Jesus had just opened the eyes of a blind man. The religious leaders, rather than being kind, rather than being gracious, rather than encouraging the blind man, was cruel to the blind man and his parents, threatened to throw them all out of the synagogue, and eventually did throw the blind man out of the synagogue. That was a big deal. That was a huge deal. And I think that Jesus was hoping that they would catch this, that he had expectations of them. When Jesus said in chapter 10, the first part, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Maybe he was looking at them and thinking, don't you guys remember what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied concerning you? The point is, guys, is that there needs to be the sensitivity to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We need to be people who, when we're reading the Word of God, we're not constantly thinking of someone else that really needs to hear this, but we should be people who read the Word of God and allow the Lord of the Word to speak to us. Sometimes it will be comfort. But you know what, guys? If all you ever hear is a comforting word from the Lord, you might be hearing another voice, maybe your own voice. Because sometimes there's the word of correction. I don't know about you, but many times I hear the word of correction, I think, more than words of comfort. Because I already know what the Lord thinks of me and how he loves me and how I belong to him. But many times I need to hear the words of correction. Well, Jesus, he says he's a good shepherd. He says that he gives abundant life. How does he do that? The answer is found in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Guys, this is so profound when you think about this. Now, of course, they weren't grasping this or weren't understanding. We have the advantage of knowing uh, the end of the gospel accounts. We have the advantage of, of, of having the book of Acts and, and the epistles and, and the book of Revelation that tells us that Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. We have the benefit of all of that. They didn't have that. But Jesus was speaking of what he was about to accomplish. I mean, this is just so profound and so wonderful. What a marvelous contrast between Jesus and the false shepherds. Now, verse 12, 13, look what it says. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So the hireling, the hireling simply a hired hen. They're not my sheep. This is only a job. Um, you know, I'm not going to risk my life for these dumb sheep. They don't mean anything to me. For the good shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep. Contrasted by the hireling, the hireling, from his perspective, the flock exists for his benefit only. This is my means of livelihood. Again, reminding you of what Ezekiel prophesied. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who feed themselves. Should not the shepherd feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool, who slaughter the fatlings. But you do not feed the flock. What was he describing? Hirelings. Hirelings. I don't care. This is a job to me. Listen, if this job ends, this, this position in this church I'll just get another position in some other church. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. I love that. The good shepherd, he lives and dies for the good of the sheep. The good shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep. Again, verse 11. The good shepherd, he knows his sheep. Verse 14, first part of verse 14. Second part of verse 14, the good shepherd is known by his sheep. Guys, I know that it gets tedious when something is read to you, um, you know, especially if it's lengthy. This isn't too lengthy. But I'm going to go back to Ezekiel chapter 34. Because in Ezekiel 34, after the Lord, through the prophet Ezekiel, rebukes the false shepherds, the hirelings, he goes on, and this is what the Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel. For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep 
and seek them out. Doesn't this sound like what Jesus was doing? As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep. In fact, in my Bible, you know, I just circled wherever it says I will, I, my sheep, you know, emphasizing the fact they belong to him. He says, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in the inhabited places of the country. The Lord says, I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in good in a good fold and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. Again, the Lord says, I will feed my flock. Guys, this was a prophecy. The Lord was speaking. Jesus was fulfilling this. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you connecting the dots here? This is where I can't help but believe that Jesus was hoping that they would realize, that they would be rebuked, that they would be corrected, and that they would turn and say, oh, Lord, that's how we're treated. Lord, I, Ezekiel was speaking to us. We get it. We understand. And that they repent. But rather they were puffed up in their pride. The Lord goes on in Ezekiel. He says, I will feed my flock. I will make them lie down. What does that remind you of? 23rd Psalm says the Lord, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken, strengthen what was sick. How beautiful. Well, back in John chapter 10, look at verse 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, he says it again. And other sheep I have, which are not um, of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And they will be one flock, and one shepherd. I'm pausing because I hope that you're pausing. I hope you're thinking about verse 16 because verse 16, the Lord is speaking of you specifically. You say, what's that other flock? Who are those other sheep that he's referring to? He's speaking of the Gentiles. Again, guys, this is why we need to be people of the word of God, because, see, we think, especially as American Christians, we think everything kind of begins and ends with us. You know, whenever we even study Bible prophecy, well, where's us? We have to fit in here someplace. That must be. And we're always trying to insert the United States into the Bible rather than just simply looking at what the word of God says and say, maybe we're not that big of a deal. Maybe we're not as big as we think we are in the eyes of the Lord, as a nation I'm referring to, not as individual believers. But the Lord, he's speaking of those who had come to faith in him. That other flock is the Gentiles. Now, if they understood what he was saying, that would have been another opportunity for them to take up stones and stone them. There he goes again, saying things he shouldn't be saying. We don't want Gentiles in our fold in our, you know, our flock, to be part of our flock. But Jesus was speaking of this. Now, guys, listen. As students of the Bible, as you're reading, as you're studying John's gospel, you know that once you get to John chapter 17, you know, you have the upper room. You have all of these things were that were happening in the upper room. And then you get to John chapter 17, and Jesus begins to pray. And he's praying for his own. And as you go through and you're reading this, this lengthy prayer of Jesus, um, as he's praying for his own, he prays for those who will come to believe in him later. Again, reference to us. Those who would come to faith through the teaching of the apostles, through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Guys, I, I hope you're grasping this, that, that this is so beautiful when you're looking at Scripture and you see something that pertains directly to you, that this is something the Lord foretold before it, it was known, before it was experienced, before it was seen. He was speaking of Jewish believers in Christ, Gentile believers in Christ, in one fold. I know that really moves you. It doesn't move us because we just don't understand it. But you know what, guys? I watched a video yesterday 
um, maybe we'll understand it in a greater way. Um, typically, when you go to Israel, the Jewish people love having tourists come to Israel because that's how they make you know, a great deal of money. It's not the only way. They have many industri industries in, in Israel. But, but tourism is one of those things. And the Jews love to have people come to Israel. Well, who comes to Israel? Well, you have tourists from the United States and all over the world that are either primarily, uh, they're, they're either Jewish, <coughs> most of them are Christian, and some might be Muslims. I say some because more and more Muslims are admitting the fact that Israel and Jerusalem just doesn't hold the significance they pretended that it did at one time. This is a shift, by the way, we're seeing. They're going to rebuild the temple. It's because the hearts of the Muslim leaders is changing about Jerusalem. This is significant. It's happening in our very day. But you have a lot of Christians who go to Israel. I was watching a video yesterday, and they had these Israeli young people. Uh, they were orthodox, not in the sense of, you know, the orthodox Jews, they, there's so many different sects of them. Some of them have the big furry hats, have you seen them? And the big long jackets. Some have um, striped jackets which is interesting, it's kind of familiar, it reminds me of the concentration camps, which is odd. Others um, have the black, of course, uh, black clothing, black hats and all, but many, many different sects of, of Jews. And these were young people. They were orthodox in the sense that they had their, uh, their, their hair, you know, growing down, so these were men, they had the, the long, uh, Jesus speaks of the phylacteries, the, you know, the, the beards and, and all. And so they were out there, and they were in Jerusalem. And as tourists were coming by, American tourists, they were out there screaming at them and saying, leave Israel. We don't want you here. So there's a growing animosity between the Jewish people and the Christians that are coming. They're fed up. You say, why is that? Good. Well, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just simply saying that hopefully we'll catch on this, this animosity that existed in Jesus' day between the Jew and the, and the Gentile because I believe that we're going to see a resurgent of that among some of the Jewish people today, which is ironic because the Christian, the Bible-believing the Bible Christian, not the replacement theology Christian, the Bible-believing Christian is the best friend to the Jew, the advocate of the Jew. We understand the importance of the Jew, of the Jewish nation and everything else, but they don't understand that. But when you look at this and you see what Jesus was saying, it's so beautiful, so powerful. Verse 17, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it, uh, take it again. Again, guys, as I read that verse, what does that remind you of? Doesn't it remind you when the Lord was before Pilate? Who tells us that, by the way? Well, John tells us that. There's a theme. There's a theme. And as you go through the scriptures, every gospel account, every epistle has a theme. And, 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 and I, I, it's not like it's a hidden thing, but I think it just takes us... You know, we need to pay attention to what's happening here. And many times it's not just one thing, but there are many themes that are running through, uh, you know, a, a particular gospel account or whatever it is. And it's like there's these rich nuggets that we can glean from with, oh, Lord, oh, I see this. Oh, this is so rich. In fact, one of the themes that we see running through John's gospel account is relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Everything he does is because of the Father. I mean, he emphasizes that throughout his gospel account. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up. Again, this commandment I have received from my Father. Therefore, there was a division, again, among the Jews 
because of these things. A division, again. Flip over a page to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 and verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. Well, here's another theme. Division among them. Among who? Among the Pharisees. Do you see, guys, even among the Pharisees, there was a division because as they're listening and they're watching, some of them are realizing, you know what, if I just kind of mellow out and just kind of lay my, my, my prejudices, my preconceived ideas about this Jesus of Nazareth, if I kind of lay those things aside for a, for a moment, have an open mind, Maybe there's something I could glean from this. And, you know, guys, by the time we get to the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection and the tomb, and, and, and you know, we have, we have Nicodemus, we have Joseph of Arimathea, uh, both of them part of the Sanhedrin. They're the ones who take the body of Jesus, give it a proper proper burial you know I mean these were disciples John tells us disciples of of Jesus though secretly for they feared their Pharisee brothers but the fact of the matter is that there are people there were people then there are people in in every generation that are open I was thinking you know when Tracy and I Right before, in our family, before we moved up here to pioneer the church, we had rented, we rented this little house in um, Grass Valley, and we had to move, and it's a, kind of a lengthy story, but our neighbor, our landlord, was really a creeper, and uh, so, and it kind of came out, and uh, so we had to move, and fortunately, the Lord opened a, a place for us immediately, and so we moved into this little uh, duplex there in town, right downtown. And the landlord of that duplex was a Roman Catholic, and uh, he was a deacon at the Roman Catholic Church there in Grass Valley, and um, you know. If you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that I have issues with Roman Catholicism because I was one. And I just saw the hypocrisy and the fact that they keep people really from the word of God and the God of the word and so on and so forth. So I have some deep-seated resentment. You might pick up on the fact that most Roman Catholics who were raised Roman Catholics have the same kind of attitude that I have toward Roman Catholics or Catholicism, not toward Roman Catholics, individuals per se. That said, this fellow was like no other Roman Catholic I had ever met in my entire life. This is including priests that would be in our home, that were friends of my parents. This particular Roman Catholic, our new landlord, talked about Jesus. Talked about Jesus all the time. He talked about salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. And we would have these conversations. And I remember standing at his car one day, and I asked him, I said, you know, I've never heard a Roman Catholic talk about Jesus as much as you talk about Jesus. And he kind of shared his story a little bit. And after he shared his story, I said, why are you still in the Roman Catholic Church? I don't know how you could stay in the Roman Catholic Church. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Dan, because there's a lot of people in the Roman Catholic Church that need Christ. I said, amen, amen. And he just felt that that was his mission, you know, and he wasn't a guy that just showed up on Sunday morning. He was a guy that was involved. You know, you're a deacon. A deacon is a different thing in a Roman Catholic Church than it is in a, you know, Protestant church. But, but he was very much involved, and obviously he was a light. I would hope, guys, that wherever we're at, that we would 
realize that we're to be the light and the salt that Christ has called us to be. And then we need to be people, because we're tuned into what Jesus said, we're not surprised when there's division. See, there's this lie of the devil, because the devil's a liar all the time. If you're a believer, you should always feel good, always. You should never, ever feel uncomfortable. If you ever feel uncomfortable during a sermon, get out of there, because it's not of the Lord. It's always good stuff. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> Remember what Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. What? <laughs> well, all of a sudden we go back to the, the, the Christmas carol. We go back to John chapter 1. We say, no, 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 that's why you came. Peace, peace on earth. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And our hearts sink. <laughs> we go, oh, no, a sink. And, and, but then he explains what he means. For I have come to set a man against his father. Oh, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. What does he say? Division. There's going to be division. And we understand it. Some of us understand it firsthand because we experienced it. You come to faith in Christ. That was my story. Mom and dad, I'm a born-again Christian. What? We raised you to be a Christian. What do you mean you're a born-again Christian? Mom and Dad, Tracy and I were baptized today. What? You were baptized when you were an infant. What are you doing? You, you shouldn't play around with these things. Dad, it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I remember my dad. What? What do you mean a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? What in the world does that even mean, you know? And there's division because there is the religious mindset. And this is what we need to be so aware of, this religious mindset. The religious mindset, again, thinking of Catholicism. You know what we had a lot in Catholicism? They still do. Icons, statues. One time we were at a, going to a pastor's conference and we were staying at a friend's house. His parents were devout, devout Roman Catholics raised all of the kids, nine kids, Roman Catholics. But one by one, they all became born-again Christians. And the mom and dad were so gracious, very kind people, lovely, lovely people. And they'd open their home up to us, and we would come down and spend some time at their house before going to the conference and staying in the conference center or whatever. One of the guys, one of the pastors that came, he took one of the statues of the Virgin Mary and he laid it in the bed of one of the pastors as a joke. And the, the pastors, you know, his parents that owned the house, he pulled it out and said, oh, don't do that. You want to be kicked out of this house? Do something like that. Touch one of those icons, you know. But thinking of icons, sometimes even for us, born-again Christians, it's like Jesus is kind of this thing. We set him up here. There he is. He's the Lord over my life. But he becomes like an icon. Does he have really any influence upon me? My decision making? How I go through life? How I parent? How I, I love my wife? How I honor my husband? I mean, does, it really, does he have any bearing upon who I am as Christians? We need to be aware of the fact the time is winding down, which is good for us if you're a believer because, you know, we're going home. But time is running out. Work still needs to be done. I mean, we still have a calling. We still have the Great Commission, right, to carry out. The enemy wants division. Now, see, there be the division for those who place their faith in Christ, and maybe your father doesn't believe, your mother doesn't believe, uh, members of your own household don't believe. You're going to have that division. That's just, you just got to live with that. But we need to be aware of another division, and that's a demonic division. The demonic division is this. Husbands and wives focused on each other rather than focused on the Lord. Spending your precious time bickering with one another rather than serving the Lord. See, he's got us. 
the rebellious teenager <laughs> who, who's making the household a little bit difficult. And all of our focus now is on the teenager who's making life difficult rather than on the Lord. Saying, oh Lord, give me the wisdom to maneuver through this. Lord, give me the wisdom not to make him or them or this or that the main thing in my life. Help me, Lord. These things are important to me. The Lord knows these things are important to him. But to put him first. It's a shame. I'm going to go where I shouldn't go. I always do this. I don't plan on it. It's not in my notes. But we have folks that attend this church. And they're involved in politics. And that's fine. I mean, you've, you've got to be led by your own convictions and prayerfully by the Spirit of God. But, um, you know, it's a shame to me when people cannot even make a Sunday morning service. I mean, it's not that long. It's not that big of a chunk out of your day. And it's because they're choosing something that's good in their eyes, but it's not the best. And the Lord is the one who told us that if we seek him and his kingdom first, then all these other things. For the Christian who's putting the other things first, you're missing his best. You are. Not you. You guys are here. But, but you're, you're, missing, you're missing the best. And they will find that all of their efforts will come to nothing. This isn't because I'm not prophesying. I'm not a prophet. But all of their efforts will come to nothing or to very little. And they'll wake up one day and realize, why didn't I put him first? Why did I make him an icon in my life, kind of, you know, covering my life, rather than the Lord of my life? Lord, I put you first. This is why we get up in the morning. Maybe we don't say these things, but we say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in him. We could either count our woes or we could count our blessings. We count our woes, we'll go through our entire day depressed, guaranteed, I could testify to, to that. I, I lived a big chunk of my adult life doing that. I did. I'm embarrassed by, the, by the, the years that I wasted in the doom and gloom of the momentary things that I cannot remember, not even one today. But they controlled my life then. Therefore, division, Nehemiah, come on up, please. Uh, um, division, again, among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and, and is mad or insane. Why do you listen to him? That, that's kind of their fallback insult, isn't it? He's got a demon, that demon guy. But listen, there's a, a voice of reason. Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Thank you, Lord, for the voice of reason. Are you the voice of reason in your sphere? Or the voice of, yeah, you're right, it's really bad. We can make a choice. We need to make a choice. I'm not saying that we fake it. I'm not saying we fake it. Maybe I'm so sensitive about this because I did waste so much time, doom and gloom. I don't know. I, um, you know, I think every kid, you have these expectations. And when I was a kid, um, I had kind of these expectations. You know, Christmas time, I grew up with Leave it to Beaver, all the black and white, you know, no color. And, and you know, mom and dad and everything was perfect. And I mean, it was, you talk about fantasy. A lot of that was fantasy. I, it was probably, life was probably more like that than it is today. But, you know, it's just like everything is good. Nothing, everything ends in that 22 minutes of the program, you know. It always ends well. It doesn't end with doom and gloom. And I remember growing up, and we had some rough times because of alcohol in the home. And, um, and I took that into my marriage. And, um, and then, you know, Christmas time, I would feel depressed at Christmas time. 
And I would, and I, I'm so embarrassed by it. We have these pictures. I'll look through photo albums, and there was these pictures, and I could see us in the Boone house, in this house. All the kids are not just Christmas time, just just in general, you know. There's the kids playing, having life, like, and there's Dad. And I look at the picture, and I could remember some trial we were going through at the church. I'm so embarrassed by that now. I really am. And I remember, it wasn't the Holy Spirit, but I remember my wife said to me, Danny, you got to snap out of it for our kids. And I'll tell you, it was my wife speaking, but I felt like it was the Holy Spirit saying, knock it off. Why are you living in the past of you know, Danny didn't have a good Christmas one year or something, and you're bringing that into your adulthood, and now you're affecting your children by this. And it was like I just kind of shook it free. And I'm so thankful for God's grace. I'm so thankful that, you know, we've been in one location for a long time. We've seen a lot of people come and go. We've made a lot of mistakes. We, we've done a lot of things that we wish we could just, you know, rewind and kind of edit that out, you know. But such is life, isn't it? Such is life. But I am so thankful for whatever turning point it was when the Lord spoke to my heart and said, I want you to be thankful. You could count your blessings, you could be thankful, or you could count your woes. And you know what I found? Man, I have so much more to be thankful for than I do to be bummed out about. And I'll tell you, I don't know if things have changed. I don't know, maybe I don't care anymore. I, I don't know what it is. But, but life just seems to be easier, this backside of it, you know, than it was in the, in the front side of it. And I think that's what the Lord wants for us. He came to give us life in that more abundantly. <clears throat> trials, yeah, sometimes the trials are abundant. But his grace is abundant as well. His love is abundant. Abundance. Stand with me, please. Lord, we pray that if there's any listening, we know that for this service, Lord, we have folks that listen live stream or they'll listen to it throughout the week. And we pray, Father, if there's anyone that's listening to this, I, we pray, we pray corporately that if they have not placed their faith in you, you know, it's clear from the text that you, you are the good shepherd. But it's, it's not clear for many individuals that you are their good shepherd. It's clear from the text that you have your own sheep. But it's not necessarily clear for each individual that they're your sheep. And we pray that that would become clear for each one. We love you. We thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.